0: I think you have to stand for something. I think if you're gonna add to a marketplace that's already flourishing like crowdfunding is, or, you know, do something that's almost nostalgic like print, it has to be because that medium is meaningful and also you're adding meaningfully to the medium. Seed&Spark is a bunch of independent filmmakers who are trying to create the future in which we can have a sustainable living as independent filmmakers. And we're just gonna take everyone with us. That's the idea. And when I say everyone, I mean anyone who wants to, right? We're going to open these access pipelines because that's what we think is right.
1: Welcome to Sheed Podcast. I'm Elaine Sheldon. And I'm Sarah Ginsberg. And today, we have Emily Best on the show, and our musical guest is Ziemba, who you will meet next week in episode 15.5.
2: Emily's only in her mid-30s, but is making waves in the indie film world as the CEO of Seed & Spark and publisher of Bright Ideas
1: magazine. Seed & Spark is a crowdfunding and distribution platform for independent film. The platform has an 84% success rate. For filmmakers looking to fundraise and to build an audience and distribute their films.
2: Seed&Spark also publishes Bright Ideas magazine, a high-design semi-annual publication dedicated to the troublemakers of truly independent cinema. If you've been to a film festival in North America, there's a good chance you've received a copy of this stunning magazine in
1: your gift bag. Emily's had a winding road to filmmaking. She managed high-end restaurants with huge staffs, studied to be a jazz singer before losing her voice, and was a translator for drunk British bachelor trips. Lastly, she performed in live theater in New York City. And New
2: York is where she met Caitlin Fitzgerald, our guest from last episode. Emily produced the feature film Like the Water with Caitlin.
1: Sarah and I met Emily in Columbia, Missouri, during the Trufoss Film Festival, where she was moderating panels and watching films. We all sat down, grabbed some pizza, and
0: had a chat in our hotel room. I'm here finally getting a sense of why this is everyone's favorite festival. It's electric around here. The town is really into it, but also the filmmakers who come are so happy to be here because they treat the filmmakers really well and they start a lot of really great conversations. And it's you just sort of like can't avoid art everywhere you go. And I couldn't help but ask
1: about her signature boots. They're awesome. I'll let her explain.
0: Oh, all right. Well, first of all, I'm wearing uh, glitter boots that are silver glitter. They're ankle boots, and the heel is rainbow glitter. I realized once I put them on that you don't get forgotten once you wear them. You know, I come to these festivals and I meet tons of people and so you're always meeting people and so in the conversations afterwards, somebody might be like, who is that random white girl with the short hair? No, glitter boots. I know who you're talking about, right? This was not something I thought when I bought them, but once I wore them, I was like, oh, this is a fantastic ancillary benefit. So I'm just gonna wear them until they fall apart. Which, for how much I paid for them, should be never. (laughs) (laughs) These glitter boots say a
1: lot about Emily's personality. And what I love about her is her unwillingness to conform and blend in. She's really not afraid to rock the boat.
0: And her life experiences demonstrate this. There's something about being really committed to a set of ideas that are important to you, having a value system that is very clear to you, and that you have to continuously articulate to yourselves and to your community in a meaningful way. You will find your people. You know, there are plenty of people out there who are like, don't go into the film business. Like, you don't want this and we don't want you. And you're like, well, you're an asshole and you're a dying breed. So let's go on a little journey
1: through her childhood to Barcelona and back to America. And one that may feel a little bit winding,
0: but stick with us. And let's start in California, where Emily grew up. In Stockton, which, sorry, Stockton, is the armpit of the West Coast. In the 80s was the murder capital of America. We lived it proud. My dad was at the Stockton Record in the newspaper there. I was a journalist. My mom was working in cable back then. When Emily was four, her parents got divorced.
2: Her dad moved to San Francisco, and this meant she split time between her parents. It also meant she spent a lot of time
0: eating at Denny's.
1: Two juicy sausage legs, two strips of
0: scissors. And for the first five or six years of this arrangement we would drive back and forth and my parents would meet in Pleasanton and like do the handoff at a Denny's where we became very familiar with the Denny's menu uh, in the 80s. I don't think now they, they weren't Rudy tutti fresh and fruity quite back then. We both know that this is just
2: These road trips sparked her love for music, singing, and performing.
0: Usually with my mom on the way, we were singing show tunes. And then with my dad, it was Motown. You know, it was like five or six tapes each that just became like the soundtrack to my youth.
2: Emily entered a rigorous IB program at a public school. She played soccer, was in drama, organized
0: the prom, and joined the high school jazz band. But I ended up singing a couple times with the high school jazz band and then joining an acapella group in college and really wanting to make singing part of that. And then I studied abroad in Spain During that study abroad trip in 2001, she enrolled in private classes at a music school. With two teachers who were really into jazz, and
1: that's what sort of ignited it. She was hooked. She came back to the U.S., finished her degree, and then moved back to Barcelona, where she enrolled in a jazz conservatory. The Taller de Musics, To a neighborhood.
0: Called the Born. It was a neighborhood of North African immigrants. You'd walk down the street and be usually among the only women in the street. So the street was teeming with young men. And then my neighbors were Dominican, and there was a barbershop outside where they'd play incredibly loud music, and the men would sit outside playing dominoes all day, every day that the sun was outside. I went to enroll in the Taller de Musiques, having done this study abroad program and having become fluent in Spanish. And the first day, I go and I give them my money, and they give me my books, and the books are in Catalan and i flipped through them and i was like but can i have the spanish version and they looked at me i had said the wrong thing they were like we don't we don't have books in spanish you'll we'll just have to you'll have to get somebody to help you with that and i said are the classes taught in catalan and the reason i didn't know this is cuz when i had gone there before i had two Um, private study professors one who spoke to me in Spanish and the other one a wonderful Argentinian jazz singer he spoke perfect English and was like delighted to be able to use it it literally didn't occur to me for some reason that of course this would be a Catalan language school and the woman saw the panic in my face I had moved all my shit from well at that time from Philadelphia To Barcelona, I had enrolled in this school, like this was my next big step, and I didn't speak the flippin' language that this course was going to be taught in. To thump on the roof, to leap for the ladder. The nice thing is if you're going to learn a language in a trial-by-fire situation such as this, I think you would either want to be taking music or math. They're things that have definitive rules and so I could infer from what was happening around the scales, for example, kind of what was being said. A month into this, this cute guitar player sits down next to me in class and at one point like leans over and says, how do you say that in English? And I was like, oh, that's a quarter note. And then I leaned back and I was like, what has he been saying for the last half hour? And we arranged what is called an intercambio, a language exchange. This guy and I would begin a torrid affair that would turn into us moving in together, that would later turn on turn into a marriage, that would later turn into a divorce. Uh, it, it was very, it was a huge event. No place. You married him. I did. I did. Yeah. I mean, I was 24. We were madly in love. We moved to the States to help my parents open this restaurant. We thought maybe we could get him an artist visa or a working visa if he worked in the restaurant. And then the immigration lawyer was like, I mean, the easiest thing you guys should do is get married. So we got married. How did you handle that? I mean, that's not easy. That's such an interesting question to ask. Um. Well... I have very, very good friends. In my experience, it was a profound admission of failure to get divorced. You know, like I'd made a bad choice. I hadn't tried hard enough or we had been wrong from the beginning or whatever. But my friends rallied in a way that was really interesting because when I became so emotionally raw, you know, you can't can't put a mask on that. You're getting divorced. Everybody knows it didn't work out. They became a lot more open with me. And I realized that maybe for 27 years of my life, uh, my sort of veneer that was really about kind of taking care of what everybody thought about me, taking making sure everybody felt comfortable, making sure I never came off as too much of anything, was actually keeping me at a distance from people. let fall.
2: Emily's music career took a downturn when she developed nodes on her vocal cords. She lost her voice, her instrument, and had to give up her studies. After that, she found her passion in the kitchen, cooking professionally. For two years, Emily helped her stepfather and mother run a restaurant in California. She then became the general manager at Bistro 33 in Davis, California. The kitchen was her business school. She managed 80 employees and increased
1: the profit margin two times in the $5 million restaurant. When she was 28, she moved to New York City to help her dad start a consulting firm. She continued working in the restaurant world. And by this time, she had given her voice enough of a rest that the nodes were gone. She hadn't performed in years, but she started getting back into theater. She was in a show called Surrender. It had a big cast of 45 and
2: two runs. She co-produced the second run. Surrender was nominated for Drama Desk Award for
0: Unique Theatrical Experience. That's when I would learn about what producing felt like. And it's just like running a restaurant. It's like being the captain of a pirate ship. You have to get a bunch of people with conflicting priorities to all agree we are going to sail in that direction for the time being. And like avoid mutiny to the best of your ability. Emily continued to work in theater and eventually she met her people, her tribe. A group of women who would utterly change my life and they were the creative collaborators I always wanted. And we started talking about what our next thing would be that we would do together. They decided to make a movie, and in 2011,
1: they produced the film Like the Water, that premiered in July 2012 at the Maine International Film Festival.
0: So producing film was even more in my wheelhouse. I don't know if it was from when I was young or from the restaurant days. It's it's more of a pirate ship. Part of running that pirate ship
2: included raising money. In 2011, Kickstarter and Indiegogo were still infants in the crowdfunding world. Emily felt they should take a different route, one that looked more like a wedding registry and allowed
0: in-kind donations. Everybody has used a wedding registry to sort of crowdsource their coupledom, right? Or or they've participated in one at some point. So we made a list of all the things we needed. Bug spray, sunscreen, camera, car rentals, gaff tape, you name it. They sent it to everyone they knew. And at the time, it was literally just a PayPal link on a WordPress site. That wedding registry... Uh, model raised us the last bit of our budget and then some, and then hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans and gifts of locations and goods and services, because people actually saw what they could materially contribute, how they could materially participate. So even from our filmmaker friends, who probably only had $5 to give, we were getting hundreds of dollars in value. Oh my God, I just finished shooting a movie. If you can drive out to my house in New Jersey, I'll give you everything you need for Crafty. The coolers, the tents, the tables, you name it. So on the back of that, after a bunch of investors that we had talked to said, wait, how did you raise that money? That's so interesting. Would you ever think about offering that to other filmmakers? And I thought, well, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. Um, But it was said to me enough times that I thought it was something we might want to proceed with. So proceed, she did. Emily's friend built the
1: first wireframes that would become Seed&Spark. But at the time, it was called... You guys ready? The name was really good.
0: The Independent Media Wishlist. It's not even a good acronym. Emily took it to her first Sundance in 2012. And I just show it on an iPad to anyone who will talk to me.
1: She talked to filmmakers about what tools they needed. She took those results and created a clickable prototype. From Sundance, she got her first advisor, and from those advisors came investors.
0: I raised a small sort of friends and family round that would get us to be able to launch on December 1st of 2012, and in the middle of 2014, I closed a million-dollar seed round. It's not like we don't have revenue, so that's been keeping us going. There's eight of us now, um, and we just added a a whole distribution pipeline uh, into the platform, so it's, it's kind of working, which is crazy seed sparks crowdfunding tool still works a lot like that
1: original wedding registry, where filmmakers list the items they need, and donors can either help loan or
0: buy those items. It's a chance for us to really participate in one another's projects without creating a lot of financial strain. You know, these mics would be incredibly valuable to someone if they weren't working for those six weeks and you were willing to loan them and they could insure them that would be a huge chunk out of someone's budget because it's not ultimately about fundraising, it's about filmmaking. And frankly, the more stuff you can get for free, the better chance you have of making a living at it once the film is finished, right? So ultimately Seed&Spark is meant to be an engine to spin off a whole bunch of truly independent, sustainable filmmaking careers.
1: When filmmakers crowdfund on Seed&Spark, they offer incentives. One of those incentives is Sparks, which are reward points. And viewers can use those Sparks to watch films on the website. Seed&Spark recently partnered with Emerging Pictures to extend theatrical distribution to filmmakers. That's on top of their other partners for streaming and distribution, including Hulu,
0: iTunes, and Netflix. So that a successful crowdfunding campaign that hits certain audience-building metrics guarantees you access to a pipeline of distribution that has been unprecedented up until now so you don't need a festival director to tell you you got in you don't need a distributor to pick your film you just need the audience to say they care
2: congratulations thank you that's really exciting i'm
0: so i'm I'm so
1: overly impressed with like (laughs) i think it's just i mean it it's logical. It made sense. You listen to people that were saying, hey, why don't you do this? By the way, I crowd crowdsourced my honeymoon.
0: I love it. I love honeymoon registries. Yeah, we did honey fun.
1: We didn't because we didn't want crap. We were like, please don't buy us anything. Like buy us, uh, rent us bikes when we go to Atacama Desert. Yeah. Anyway, um, so I'm a huge fan of it. And I've done Kickstarter several times. But I mean, what does it feel? How does it feel to be like the CEO of this company that We're walking around in Sundance just trying to get people's attention to being part of this like movement that is so much a part of our economy now and that is helping to support so many more films in ways that's beyond just like getting money.
0: It is an utter honor to get to interact with so many filmmakers and to be a part of bringing to life not, you know, five films a year, but hundreds Feeling like the tools that we're providing are connecting filmmakers who don't live anywhere near each other and would never meet otherwise and are starting to collaborate as a result. That's really exciting. The greater access, the greater transparency, the greater independence for artists, the more diversity we're going to see on screen and the wider audiences we're going to serve. Like the most exciting, delicious part of where we are now is that the internet can help also be a barometer of what actually matters to people. And there are certain voices you just can't shut out anymore. You know, for us at Seed and Spark and certainly Bright Ideas, what we are promoting is a world in which people get to tell their own hero stories, but they might also wish to tell stories about profoundly broken people or profoundly complicated people. Women who don't necessarily, we don't have to be mythically heroic anymore. We don't have to be perfect. We can be dichotomous and flawed and if you look at what you know Carrie russell's doing on the americans and what viola davis is doing on how to get away with murder uh what what robin wright is doing on house of cards i mean are you serious you know what gabby hoffman's doing in transparent like she's kind of despicable i hate her and i am so happy that she's a character on screen because i we all know that girl you know? And that's okay, too. It, like, this is where I feel like we're like, we're winning at feminism right now, you know? Or we're winning at diversity, is when these characters can emerge onto the screen.
2: Is also the publisher of bright ideas magazine a high-designed print mag about film culture dedicated to the new voices and old geniuses of independent film it was the brainchild of james Kalin, who was the managing editor of movie maker mag when emily met him and actually it's kind of sweet their moms introduced them mrs Kalin and emily's mom were in a woman's leadership
0: group together and she said so i was thinking maybe i could introduce you and i was like mom good work like do it please like we need that kind of connection and press and t- James' experience, of course, was, oh, God, Mom, like, you're going to introduce me to some, somebody's daughter who has, like, a film blog that she writes on Tumblr or whatever. But James
1: agreed to have a meeting with Emily, and the two started brainstorming. They talked about creating an online publication, but ultimately, James made a convincing argument in favor of print
0: he had a profound reaction around what the role of independent film journalism would be and he didn't want to be part of the press cycle and he didn't want to be just writing about whatever the publicists were feeding to him what he wanted was something that was actually pushing the culture forward technicolor who was launching a platform called creative district supported the first issues of bright ideas and we launched the first first issue at Sundance 2013, and subsequent to that, Bright Ideas became the official magazine of the Sundance membership, its national newsstand, in-room at the Ace Hotels, and distributed at all the top North American film festivals, including, of course, True False.
2: Bright Ideas covers are dedicated to first-time feature directors. The first cover
0: featured Ryan Coogler of Fruitvale Station. The second cover was Anna-Lily Amirpour, who made the film You Were Not Allowed to Hate last year, partially because it was wonderful, but because every year there's that film that you're not allowed to hate. And it's because her first feature was a... Feminist treatise on Iranian culture in the form of a Farsi language, native black and white vampire skateboard movie. The film is actually called A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Like, this is somebody who kicked the door down in the independent film world and was like, I have arrived! And these are the sorts of people we're looking for, right? That's Bright Ideas in a nutshell.
1: And it's beautiful. It's like beautifully designed. I love I love it. It's a joy to feel and read. Yeah, the print's beautiful. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious... You think that people are doing all they can do in crowdfunding, you think like Prince dead, but here comes Emily and like these crazy ideas. What does that say about, to people that have these ideas that maybe they're thinking like, you know, no one's gonna, no one's gonna buy into this, because there's just this, there's this assumption that like Kickstarter's already covering it all.
0: I think you have to stand for something. I think if you're gonna add to a marketplace that's already flourishing like crowdfunding is, or you know, do something that's almost nostalgic, like print. It has to be because that medium is meaningful and also you're adding meaningfully to the medium. The thing about being an artist is there's always room. But now more than ever, if you want to make a sustainable living, it's your responsibility to find the people who also want you to have a sustainable living doing what you do. It's early in the re-education, I think, of Filmmakers who've been so used to sort of like I can only do it if I get into a major festival and make a major sale And what they learn time and time again is once you sell that film, it's gone As all the audience that you were gonna gather is gone And maybe it got you exposure and maybe it got you your next job, but if you're a woman or a person of color, it probably didn't And so I think we're we're in a, what's going to be a very long and tumultuous sea change And for the filmmakers who can really stay dedicated to building their relationship with their audience, they will always emerge winners because there's so much integrity in that. You know, you're never waiting for somebody to say yes to you. I'm wondering personally, like, what do you, what feelings, like, what do you get out of this? Like, what, how does this satisfy you? God, you know, things are moving so quickly. It can be really hard to be reflexive in that way. Um, we are moving away from a culture of scarcity and towards a culture of plenty as a a film community and I think particularly as women. I host a women in moving pictures salon in Los Angeles once a month. I usually send everybody a couple things to read, maybe something to watch and something to think about and we have a proper salon. Everybody shows up, we get some drinks, we sit down and we talk. Um, And the list is now 200 women long and what's so profoundly satisfying to me is how much work women are getting because of this google list like this is a list with 200 women on it and five times a day something somebody sends out in search of line producer for 10 million dollar feature and there was a group of women last weekend who the director the dp the writers the actors the sound everybody was from this group From this, we call ourselves the WIMPs, Women in Moving Pictures Salons. The WIMPs group is showing me immediately what a culture of plenty can cultivate and how quickly.
1: You talked about complex characters and how... It's good that we have, you know, maybe women on screen that we don't necessarily love. And I'm wondering if you can let us in on the things you would like to improve on, whether it's professionally or personally. I mean, you've achieved so much, but we want to make you <laughs> feel like a persons? real human that has flaws. <laughs> that we can, really, you know... Maybe you don't have flaws and no. you're a robot. <laughs> no, Actually, I was...
0: I, I wish I, I wish I could explain... I wish I could explain the profound spinning out that occurred and the, and the speed at which it occurred, which was sort of like, where would I even begin that list? It's such a long list. And why do I think I have such a long list of flaws? And is that something that only women do? And you know what I mean? Like, I, the amount of spinning out that just happened was, like, <laughs> terrifying. So the silence was not, I don't have any flaws. It was like, which ones should I list? Um, You're going to fall, aren't you, that chair? Yeah, this, and also this chair is flawed. Uh, <laughs> I... Uh, I'm really hard on myself. I have an internal voice that is kind of an asshole, you know, that can be very hard to quiet. I'm really opinionated, and, like, I'm a quick decision maker, and that is something that I know, particularly as a CEO, people have to sort of learn to encounter and push back on. I'm very sensitive, and I can take things really personally, but I can also hide it really well, so then I can really spend a lot of time not sleeping at night worrying about what I should have said or how I was wronged or <laughs> whatever. Um, I wonder sometimes if my independence is, I mean, you're catching me, you're catching me at the end of an eight-year relationship. Um, so I have a lot of questions around what my independence and drive and ambition might mean for my heart, you know, and I, uh, I have to work very, very hard to be responsive and not reactive um, because I'm busy and decisive, right? And so sometimes that can turn into sort of like, this is my decision and that's final. It's funny because I watched the act of killing tonight and Joshua Oppenheimer got up on stage, but about halfway through, he said something which I sort of tried to compose into a tweet, and I'm not sure I captured it. But he said, once you get past the fear of really looking at something, that holds a tremendous power. And that is going to be sitting with me for a while, because I think sometimes I need that thing. I think sometimes I have a fear of really looking, because it can be you know very painful you know yeah well. i would say
1: <laughs> i i have only been married for a year and like 5 months and I, I we joke that i would be much more successful if i wasn't married because <laughs> i would already like be so far into i mean because i was so like nose to the grind when we were dating and and he really loves that about me mm-hmm. but like there's something that changes in you in a relationship where you're, where you feel like you need to balance this, especially when you're married. Well, if you want to stay married, certainly right. you have to balance it. Right, and he's all for it, and he'll come along on every ride like I want him to come along on. I couldn't yeah. be with a more supportive person, but something inside me, I sort of lost myself for a couple months trying to figure out like, oh crap, there's like a 50% of me now that like I have to take into account. Yeah,
0: Yeah, well I think this is when really taking stock on a regular basis of what it is you want to do like big vision out there over the horizon how will the world be different because of your work and being very clear about what that is so that comparison doesn't become the enemy of all joy that your journey is yours and yours alone and so those shoulds that are happening I should be here I should be here are utterly because somebody else on their journey is comparatively more advanced in your estimation but you have no idea where they want to go right so it's it's something that's happening so internally that doesn't necessarily reflect the sort of universe that is actually you know that that person's truth it only reflects yours right and the other piece of it is is the the values right what um what is it that I really when I get really quiet what is it that I really profoundly hold dearest and those are the things from which you shouldn't depart. And those are the, to me, that's the compass to the best of my ability. We both know that this is just a stone. You know, those moments when, like, you're the kind of friend you're proud to be. Do you know what I'm talking about? Or you're the kind of partner that you're proud to be. Like, do you find that satisfaction anywhere else? No, so like that has to be a part of your life. I mean, I'm sort of saying that for you, but I... Yeah, and, and that the satisfaction that you find in your work has its own particular characteristic, but absent one or the other, are, are you all of what you value, right? And I think women, particularly, are put in such an impossible situation. Being brought up to be incredibly nurturing, but also of a generation where we're also allowed to be incredibly ambitious. We have a lot to contend with, and I think, not that you solicited it, but if I were to give you a piece of advice, you know, I don't know, six or eight eight years ahead of you, I would say, find a way to really forgive yourself. Those moments of spinning out and all of those things, the thing you don't need to add to that is then the like, why am I spinning out? And this is also indicative of ways in which I am broken. Boy, do I know that cycle. Really letting yourself ask these questions and also take moments to say, this is hard. And actually, the way that the whole society was built, it's harder for us. It is. It's harder for us. We have more to contend with. We're built that way. We're literally built that way. I was a cedar Prizing their nasty diet Swallow
1: Thanks so much to Emily Best for being generous with her time and advice. Oh my gosh. Do you have a question? No, I'm just like really emotional.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can't really go any further because I don't want to cry again. It's sounding really bad. <laughs> You're making me <laughs> cry. <laughs> I'm
1: like tearing up right now.
2: This show is a product of Slate's Panoply Network, and this episode was produced by us,
1: Sarah Ginsberg and Elaine Sheldon, and sound designers by Billy Wrasnick. Like the Water, the film Emily and Caitlin worked on together went live on Verizon Fios on July 24th, and it will also be available for pre-order on iTunes on July 31st.
2: Music this week is by Ziemba. Tune in next week to hear our interview with her and the live performance we recorded in Brooklyn. Thank you for listening to She Does.